Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, Bad Dirt. What makes Bad Dirt so bad? The answer? The ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like Bad Dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man who just finished reading Somehow, Someway by Gordon Shumway. He is the captain. When you laugh at the captain intros, you can tell I wrote them. When they don't make any sense, those are Nick. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today we are featuring Pink Drink by High Wire Brewing. Garage grade three and three quarter bottle caps out of five. Pink Drink is a tart wheat ale brewed with lemongrass and raspberries with an ABV of 4.2%. All right, a round of drinks and a big cheers to Trey and Anna in Atlanta, Georgia. And a big shout out to Jessica in Montgomery, Alabama. Next up, we have Kayla in Mountain Brook, Alabama. Shout out to all the Frederico Kitchens fans. And a big cheers down under to Trevor from Perth, Australia. Next up, we have Dave W. in Wall, New Jersey. And last but certainly not least, cheers to Rachel Von Rhein in Medford, New Jersey. Everyone we just named went to TrueCrimeGarage.com and contributed to this week's beer fund. And for that, we thank you. And we're a little bit behind, so be patient, or we'll kick you off the list. And that is enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. Friday, October 27th, 1989, Bay Village, Ohio. This should have been just a normal, typical Friday. The kids go off to school, the parents go to work, and when everyone gets home, we can start our weekend. But on this Friday, not everyone will come home. Ten-year-old Amy Mahalovic went to school. She was in the fifth grade at Bay Village Middle School. After school, she walked with friends to the Bay Village Shopping Plaza. Amy was last seen that day by two of her peers. They would later report that they saw Amy Mahalovic standing outside of the Baskin-Robbins ice cream shop. Amy was approached by a man in his early 30s, standing about 5 foot 8 to 5 foot 10 inches tall with dark hair and maybe a bald spot on the top of his head. 
One witness said the man was wearing a tan jacket and might have been wearing glasses, but could not be sure. The man walked right up to Amy, leaned down, and he said something to her. He placed his hand on Amy's back and led her away. This man walked right up to her, spoke to her, and then took her. No one who saw the man with Amy knew who he was. And to this day, we don't know who he is. But we do know that he is a very, very evil man. I want to jump right into a very detailed timeline. Now, there are pretty good timelines out there regarding Amy's case and what went on the day she went missing. The Lake Erie Murders documentary does a pretty good one, but the best timeline, I believe, is found in James Renner's book, Amy, My Search for Her Killer. There's a chapter in there called Minute by Minute, and this chapter is by far the most detailed account of the day that Amy was taken. I'm not going to read the minute-by-minute chapter, but most of the following is ripped right from the pages of Renner's very good book. Before we get into this timeline, it's important to note a few things. One, Amy is in the fifth grade, and her older brother Jason is in the seventh grade. They both attend Bay Village Middle School. Now, Bay Village is a very nice small town. It's what I would call like a It's got a suburb feel to it. It's upper middle class. And at one time, it was listed as one of the safest cities probably in the nation. Now, October 27th, 1989, the day Amy was taken, it was a particularly warm day that day in Bay Village. A little after 6 a.m., Amy woke up and dressed herself. She picked out green pants and a pale green sweatshirt with lavender trim. She slipped on her favorite earrings. These are silhouettes of horse heads rendered in turquoise mounted on gold studs. On the way out the door, she put on a white windbreaker. She slipped on a pair of black riding boots laced up the front. She grabbed her blue denim book bag with red piping around her shoulders. Outside, she climbed onto her blue antique bike and met up with two friends, Kristen and Katie, from down the road. The three rode together to Bay Village Middle School. Amy was seated at her desk in Mrs. Stewart's classroom before the bell rang at 7.50 a.m. The students attended an assembly before lunch that day. At the assembly, they listened to police officer Mark Spetzel talk about safety and stranger danger. At lunch, Amy ate spaghetti in the school cafeteria. Classes let out that day at 2.10 p.m. for the 5th graders. Normally, Amy would get on her bike and ride home, but this day she left the bike behind, instead asking a friend, her name's Olivia, if she could walk with her. The two are walking, but this is not in the direction of Amy's home. In fact, Olivia mentions to Amy, you never walk this way, to which Amy replies, I'm meeting a friend or I'm meeting a family friend. Which... Those comments are extremely different, but it has been reported both ways. When the two were approaching the Bay Village Square Shopping Center, Amy informed Olivia that the shopping center was her destination, and then the two parted ways there. A classmate of Amy's named Haley then saw Amy walk toward a black van, but then Amy stopped, stepped away, and walked toward the Baskin-Robbins store. Amy did not go into the ice cream shop. She stood outside swinging around the pole, keeping her head down, apparently lost in thought. Around 2.45 p.m., a girl named Maddie was near the Baskin-Robbins. She saw Amy, and she saw a well-dressed man in a beige or tan jacket walk up to Amy. He leaned forward, said something to Amy, put his hand on her back, and led Amy away. At that time, Maddie assumed this was Amy's dad. At 3 p.m., Amy's brother Jason arrived home. 
Now, this is one of those really sad, lesser-known moments in this case. Jason later says that his intentions after school that day were to go to the shopping plaza. He did not intend on going to the shopping plaza because he knew that Amy was there. In fact, he had no idea that she would be there. He was going to go there just because so many of the other kids would go there after school. Mm -hmm. However, on his way, Jason spotted some boys that were older than him. And these boys often picked on Jason and some of the other kids. So seeing these boys, Jason decides to go home instead. Now, this is why I say this is a really sad moment. And I know that I can tell from listening to Jason talk about his sister's case and talk about the events of that day. He holds a lot of guilt regarding this decision because there's got to be a small part of him that wonders and thinks, Hey, had I gone to the shopping plaza that day and seen my little sister and said, you know, what are you doing here? This whole thing may have been prevented. Yeah. If Amy was hanging out with her brother, maybe this perpetrator wouldn't come up to Amy or if he did, that Jason would have been able to identify this individual. Yeah. And the thing to note here that I think is very important, there's a lot of kids coming from the school going to this shopping center. Okay. And the, whoever this offender is, when they approached Amy, even though there are a lot of other people around, a lot of kids, Amy is by herself at this time. Right. And as you said, had the brother been standing right next to her or interacting with her, this person may have thought this is not the opportunity that he was looking for. Well, and to be clear, the other kids are there for a different agenda. They're there to be at the Baskin Robbins or to be hanging out. Amy is there, which we know because she told her friend she is there to meet somebody. Yeah. And I want to be clear. I don't think that Jason has, should have any guilt regarding this decision that he made. He made this decision based off of, these older boys being real jerks. And, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of us have been there where we've been sidetracked or stepped away from something we wanted to do because people we don't enjoy being around or people that could be harmful to ourselves are, are there. So that brings us to about 3 p.m. on the timeline. Yeah, Jason arrives home from school, and at this time he calls his mother Margaret. She's at work. Now, it was common for both Amy and Jason to call her once they got home from school. Jason tells his mom that Amy is not at the house. Now, this does raise some alarms for Margaret. But just a few minutes later, after Jason called, Amy then called Margaret. Margaret, assuming Amy was calling from home at the time. Amy tells her mother that she stayed after school for choir auditions. Later, Margaret said Amy seemed off as if she was rushing the conversation and not her typically talkative self. Margaret, a little rattled by the whole situation, does decide to leave work a little early. That day, she packs up her things for the weekend and leaves work. Margaret arrives home, pulling into their driveway on Winford Drive sometime between 4 and 4.30 p.m. Jason is quick to point out to his mother that Amy still has not come home. The maternal instinct kicks in. Margaret rushed to the middle school. The first thing she notices is Amy's bike is still in the bike rack. Margaret tried to get into the school, but no luck. So she jumped in her car and drove straight to the police station. Now we should also note the layout of Bay village here at this time in 1989, the middle school is just right down the street from the shopping center and pretty much right across the street from the shopping center we have the police station. So very quickly, she's able to arrive at the school, notices the bike, can't get access to the school, drives to the police station. This stuff is all happening very quickly. Once she gets to the police station, Amy's mom's going to report her missing right away. The officer that took the report, this is Barbara Slepecki. This good officer did not waste time treating Amy as a runaway, which was the standard protocol at the time. She believed Margaret and Margaret's fear, and somehow she knew that this was the real deal. So a call went out to officers and to surrounding towns, this at 5.58 p.m. The call included an incomplete description of Amy. 
But at this time, we have officers in Bay Village and officers in surrounding towns looking for the missing little girl. Mark Mahalovic, unaware of the growing storm at the home front, he arrived home from work at 6.30 p.m. to find his family in a panic and Amy gone. Yeah, didn't he work at a car dealership? He worked for Buick at the time and, and was more involved than just a singular dealership. Okay. Mark spent the rest of the evening scouring Bay Village with a friend. He drove his car up and down every street, this between his house and Holly Hill Farms, which is important to the family because Holly Hill Farms is where Amy would ride horses. This was a big-time hobby of hers. He also drove between their home and the school and Huntington Park, and he walked through ravines and the woods calling his daughter's name. At 11 p.m., thanks to the efforts of Jean Sabo, she was the mother of one of Amy's closest friends, and she was on the PTA at Amy's school. She took a picture that she had of Amy, her school picture, to the local news channels, and then they broadcast Amy's picture with her name requesting help or information regarding the missing little girl. Amy was described as 5 foot 10 inches tall and weighing around 90 pounds with shoulder length dark blonde hair. We need to get to one very important aspect about this case and information that we know that could help us find who took Amy. Now, it was not immediate. It was not right away that the authorities learned that there was previous interaction between the abductor and Amy Mahalovic. What they do learn from talking to Amy's friends. So some of her classmates told police that Amy had said she was going to the shopping center for a gift for her mother with a stranger who claimed to be a friend of the family. Now from the local newspaper here, I'll read this. Amy was last seen alive by a classmate in the afternoon of October 27th, talking to a man outside the Bay Village Square Shopping Center. Her classmates told police Amy had said she was going shopping for a gift for her mother with a stranger who claimed to be a friend of the family. A neighbor told police that Amy had received a telephone call at her home before her disappearance from a man claiming to be a friend of Amy's mother, Margaret Mahalovic. The neighbor said the man told Amy her mother had received a job promotion and invited the girl on a secret shopping trip to get Mrs. Mahalovic a present. Mrs. Mahalovic has said she was not promoted at her work. At the time, Margaret Mahalovic is working at the Trading Times. This could have been a bit confusing for Amy, okay? There are, there are things in this case where the abductor, I believe, got lucky on some things. The first being this. Amy's mother did not receive a promotion, but at some point, not too long before this abduction, Margaret went from part-time to full-time. Now, Amy was a very smart young girl, but I could see her assuming that that might be a promotion. This adding to the credibility of the stranger that's calling on Amy's behalf. You know, your mother recently received a promotion. This would feel to Amy that maybe this person is who he says he is. He's a friend of my mother's because he knew that she is now working full time. Yeah, so that's a detail that maybe he just got lucky on. Or is it a detail that leads somebody to believe that he actually knew the mother? Correct. Yeah, that, and that's the way that they're going to go with the investigation at that time. So when she's first missing, they're talking to all of her friends and people at the school and people at the shopping center. As soon as they find out this detail, they being the authorities, find out the detail about the phone call, now they're really looking into Margaret Mahalovic, anybody that she worked with, anybody that she knew, as well as Mark Mahalovic, same thing, people he worked with, people that he knew, and really anybody that knew the family or people in the neighborhood. This is a very interesting aspect to this case. And I think that this is why one of the reasons why this case has remained somewhat in the spotlight, especially for Northeastern Ohio for so many years, because of there, there are a lot of abductions and a lot of missing persons cases 
where somebody just simply vanishes. And what I mean by that is there's no eyewitnesses. There's not much of a story as to when they were last seen or who they were seen with. Yeah, there's not a story leading up to them going missing or a story afterwards. So here we have, not only do we have eyewitnesses who saw a man with Amy at the shopping center, now we have a situation where he was unlucky because Amy didn't keep this a secret. She did tell some of her friends, hey, I'm meeting a friend and I've received these phone calls. Now, there is some debate if it was one call or multiple calls or how many calls it would have been. Personally, I believe there was probably more than one call. But one thing that leaves this case and I think intrigues people about this case is the aspect of the phone call itself. This is what you have when you have a case with a little meat on the bone. There's, there's something to chew on here. There's something to ponder. This could be an angle that could lead you to the right suspect. Now, there were other calls made to other girls. This before Amy went missing. Yeah. It's been reported a whole bunch of different ways that uh, there were multiple calls placed to girls that lived in no North Olmstead Falls, which is not terribly far from Bay Village, but it's not terribly close either. Through the years, I've really paid attention to the reports about these phone calls because I think personally, I think that these calls are connected to Amy's case. Right now, what I have seen as far as Bay Village law enforcement and the FBI is concerned, they have stated on the record that they believe two calls, two calls to two different girls are probably connected to Amy's situation. Keep in mind, this is 1989. It was not uncommon for people to crank call people back then. Yeah. It was not uncommon for perverts to pick up the phone and just randomly dial somebody. Well, and also how many girls came forward afterwards saying, oh, I got a call. But, but never received a call. Possibly, but what we do have on record is the law enforcement telling us that out of all of these people that came forward, we believe that two of these are probably connected. So not all of them, but probably two of them. To which the reason why I think they would know that they were connected is I believe the caller probably said similar things to these girls, to what Amy told her friends was said to her. That's your way to connect these two. Now, in those two situations, luckily, those two girls decided to hang up on this man and not meet him somewhere. Again, this goes back to where I think Amy got fooled. She got tricked because this guy got lucky. Your mom received a promotion. We know she went from part-time to full-time. I think this was perceived by Amy to be that promotion that he was talking about. So there were other calls made. Now, many years later, and, and I've followed this case since 1989, so I'm always very intrigued when I find out some new information. It wasn't until last year, and this was through Bill Huffman and through James Renner, that I learned a small detail about that phone call. It sounds to me like Amy was pretty thorough and pretty detailed when she told these two friends about the phone calls because she stated, we know this little fact here, this little detail here right. that the caller, the man told Amy that we have 40 or $45 to spend on your mother's gift. And by the way, because you're helping me and you're helping us out, whatever's left over after we purchase the gift, you can just keep or we'll buy something for you. Right. So that's an interesting little detail. The problem with this case and the problem with the perception of this case has always been that so many people immediately jump out of their chair and go, well, why the hell wouldn't they just law enforcement just figure out who the caller was by the call log to the house, to Amy's house, look for the number that doesn't fit or look for all the incoming calls that were received leading up to her abduction and trace, trace down those phone numbers to addresses and to individuals and interview those individuals. The problem with that scenario is at the time, police's hands were a bit tied on this and getting, you, they just couldn't get that type of information. What we learn is basically the, the phone records that are kept by the phone companies at that time are very basic, right? Very simple. 
if it's a long distance call, it is billed differently than if it's a local call. So therefore, the phone company keeps track of all of the long distance calls going in and out. However, they don't keep track of local calls going in and out because they're not billed in that same manner. There's no reason for them to keep that record. But what that does tell us is that the call or calls that Amy received came from the same area code where she lived. But an area code is pretty large. And probably larger back then, covering a larger radius back then than today. Yeah, true. So back then, the chief of police for Bay Village was William Garreau, and I'm I'm hoping I say his name right. But in the newspapers, he stated that the two calls that they believe could be connected to Amy's case took place in March and April of 1989. Here's an interesting thing to ponder. We know that the call to Amy was local. So if law enforcement firmly believed that these two calls out of all the tips they received about other possible calls, if these two calls were connected to Amy's case, you damn well better believe that they tried to track down that information the same way that they tried to track down the phone call information regarding Amy's calls. So what we can gather from that is that wherever these two calls that they believe were connected to Amy's case were located, the individuals that were received these calls, we can figure out from there that those must have been local calls as well because they were unable to track down the offender based off of that information. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL Learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, Thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. 
Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious. From breakfast to dessert, stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, cheers, mates. Let's get back to the Amy Mihalovic case. Cheers to you, Captain, right right through the glass. (laughs) On the morning of February 8th, 1990, Janet Seabold is out enjoying her daily early morning jog. She was maybe a mile from her house, jogging along County Road 1181 in Ashland County. This spot is 46.8 miles from the Bay Village Shopping Center where Amy was last seen. That morning, Janet spotted something maybe 20 feet off the west side of the road. Mind you, For those new to this case, this area is very rural. These are large farmland properties. Whatever Janet thought it was that she was seeing, it was enough to grab her attention, so much so that she stopped jogging and walked toward the object, taking very slow steps. Soon, Janet got close enough to make out that she was looking at the motionless body of a human, lying face down in the mud. Janet ran to the nearest home and pounded on the door. And Patricia Kidd opened up the door. So when Patricia opens up the door, Janet is on the front porch and she is crying uncontrollably. What she says is, I think I found a body. Call the police 
why did it have to be me that found it? Yeah, I could imagine how devastating that would be, especially to find the body of a child. Yeah, and I believe that Janet was aware of, you know, judging by the size of what she was looking at, she probably knew that it was a child. They did call the police, and the police arrived very quickly on the scene. The very sad thing here, too, is Amy's case was so well-known to the public and to the surrounding areas that even though this little area, this farmland community that's 48 miles away from where she was last seen, the local authorities there were aware of a missing girl. And actually, they were looking for a potential body in different locations of their county leading up to this. So when they get this call, it's kind of one of those situations where they're like, shit, we might know without even being there what we're actually responding to. And everybody's looking for this little girl and we may have found her dead in our county. And they were able to confirm that probably very quickly on site, but they confirmed it through dental records later that day. So it was confirmed that what everyone suspected they had found the body that belonged to Amy Mahalovic. Does the autopsy give us any clues or any information? It does give us some information. I'm going to read from Emily Thompson's book, Unsolved Child Murders. She has a chapter in there on Amy Mahalovic, and it reads, The pathologist had even more disturbing news for Margaret and Mark Mahalovic. Not only did he confirm that Amy had been murdered, but she had been brutally stabbed in the neck three times and bludgeoned over the head with a heavy object. It was a violent death for a young child. Now the autopsy report was never released to the public, but this author, Emily states that she was able in her research to obtain a copy from the Ashland County coroner's office. And she goes on to say that when Amy's body was found, she was fully clothed except for her shoes Her genitalia showed no signs of trauma. However, a spot of blood was discovered in her underwear. The stab wounds to the neck had severed the carotid artery, leading to her death. There was also a post-mortem stab wound to her chest. Disturbingly, her nails were irregularly broken, suggesting that she had attempted to defend herself from the man who had so brutally killed her. Her body was in an advanced state of decomposition indicating that she had been dead for several months. So most likely she was killed closer to the abduction date than the date that she was found. Yes, that's the way that it would appear, judging by those statements in uh, Emily Thompson's book. I do want to further that information a little bit, because James Renner has said that he was able to see the autopsy report. And I I can't remember if he had to go through from memory later when he spoke about it or if he was able to take notes because you've seen captain you've seen zodiac remember when robert graysmith is is trying to see some of the case file from one of the murders in the in the zodiac murders yeah and they're like yeah we'll let you look at it but you got to go in there with nothing you know we can't have you um, jotting this stuff down or making copies or anything like that you got you can go in there and take a, a quick look at it and you're going to have to remember whatever you see right. or read. That, that's actually more common than, than people think. Yeah. So Renner has said publicly, I believe it was on his website. He stated that, you know, this was a big moment for him because it was a big battle for him to win, to see this autopsy report. It was something he was trying to view for quite some time before he was actually allowed to look at it. After viewing it, he did say, You know, there are things in there that I'm just going to keep to myself. And I have absolutely zero problem with that. We have covered cases where they are open cases and we've come across some information or seen some things and had to make the decision. It's in the best interest of the investigation of the open investigation that some of this information is not widely known isn't, yeah but isn't public it, right but it still makes you curious when you hear something like that yeah. especially with a guy like james renner that is so open about his investigations on cases well and especially this case 
Yeah. You know, it, uh, maybe um, brutally honest, we should say, when it comes to Amy's case. And I think that's just because he, he like so many of the rest of us, this is an important case to to him personally. And he, like so many of us, want to see this thing solved. I want to go into some things here because there's always been the question of was Amy sexually assaulted? And from the statement that we just read, you can't really gather. It doesn't sound like she was raped. And, and I'm sorry to use these, these terrible words and descriptions, but this is where we are. Yeah. There are indications that there was some form of sexual assault. One being that when they found her, remember that she is fully clothed. And I just used uh, air quotes there. But the underwear that she was wearing when she was found was inside out. Now, this could have just been happenstance, could have just been an accident or whatever. But law enforcement believes that this is an indication that she may have been redressed at some point. And then we further that with what Emily Thompson says in her book about there being blood inside the underwear, Amy's blood. Well, the injuries that occurred that led to her death very likely would not have placed blood inside the underwear. So it's another indication that at some point during whatever assault occurred, that she was in a state of undress or partially undressed. And to further that thought, I have never, in all my years of following this case, I've never heard an investigator say anything other than the following. We can't think of any other reason why somebody would have taken her. When, when asked specifically, was she sexually assaulted or raped? They said, we can't, there, there's things to indicate that, We can't prove it. We can't say 100%, but we believe some type of assault happened based off of the information we can see. But furthermore, we can't find any other motivation for the abduction in the first place. And we've talked about it before. It's sad that we live in a world that we, we can walk down the street, zero motive, if we don't have money on us or if somebody doesn't dislike us. But females walk around with a motive on them 24 seven with all these creepos out there. And, and so, yeah, I mean, it doesn't make any sense why somebody would take her again, unless you go with the angle that this person was actually close to the family and it's some kind of revenge for some reason. But if they don't have any evidence that are pointing them into the direction of somebody that actually knew the family or somebody that was mad at the family, the mother or father, then what other motive would there be? Mm -hmm. And if you believe that the other two phone calls to the other girls are in fact connected, we can't say 100%. Right. But if you believe those to be connected, then that takes away from revenge as well. Well, just even if there's this one call that's connected, Mm -hmm. you know, um, it's difficult though too, but, because there's no trauma in that area, but you could have a situation where, you know, it's a stretch, but you know, there's medical conditions like micro penises and things like that, that might not actually leave trauma. Well, and the other thing that you have to wonder, I mean, it was a hundred days, a hundred or so days after the abduction that the bodies found. So we have months of decomposition going on. Yeah. What is lost through that time? Remember, we talked about when we watched the Adnan Syed uh, special on HBO, they titled one of them, Time is the Killer. Yeah. Again, we have a situation here. Time is the killer in this case because it's the killer of evidence that could have been on or around her body. All this decomposition takes place. Again, this is another situation where I really feel that this offender is not like super sophisticated. This is not a Hannibal Lecter type where he's just so much more brilliant than the law law enforcement officers and investigators working the case. This is another situation where I believe that he again got lucky that I believe that this body there, there is reason to believe that the body was very likely there for quite some time. And I mean, in the field, And the thing that we also should point out here too is 
There has never been an investigator who has visited that dump site that recovered her body that day that has said, we believe she was killed here. Everybody has always said the amount of blood, the amount of, uh, of blood from that attack, she had to have been killed elsewhere and then later transported to that location. Now, Renner, as well as some others have stated that there was a, a sapling or some type of plant growth that had grown through one of the articles of clothing that Amy was wearing. They can't say for certain how long it would have taken that, that plant growth to protrude and go through the clothing. But what they can say is that is an indication that she was in that field for a long time before being discovered. Now, what's your gut feeling? Like if you had to give it a percentage of motive, do you have a percentage of what you think it was, you know, the motive being rape? Oh, the, to me, 100%. Yeah. I, I cannot. I agree. I, it's. And even if, I've even if the, the guy's other, doing some kind of sexual assault, it, it's rape. That's what it is. The, this idea of, you know, whatever happened, even if there wasn't penetration or whatever, that, that it's, it's, it's rape. That's what it is. And, and, and the amount of fear that she had to go through is, I mean, it's horrible to think of. From Emily Thompson's book, The the Broken Fingernails, Amy's Broken Fingernails, pointing out that she defended herself, I, I've always believed that she fought back, and I've always believed that the motivation for the abduction was sexual in nature. I don't, I don't, where I have a break in the case, in the motive of the offender is I I'm unable to determine or to decide if the killer, if the abductor knew in advance that he was going to kill the victim. I've always kind of believed that the motivation was sexual and that the killing may have happened because she fought back and that maybe that was not the intention of the abductor. Now, obviously, we will never know that until this offender is apprehended. And if they choose to tell us what their motives and motivations were. But that's always been my thought. 100% this was a sexually motivated crime. The other thing that comes into question here is not only how long was the body in the field, but how long was Amy kept alive? If, in fact, the motivation for the abduction was sexual in nature, and this offender went to all of these high-risk activities to to abduct her. It's thought that he would want to have spent some time with her. So one thing that we should point out based off of the autopsy information is that at some point, Amy consumed what is, I believe it's listed as a soy-based protein product. Now, that doesn't tell us exactly what she consumed, obviously. Right. And again, that might lead towards some of the decomposition that took place. But there's been a lot of speculation on this of what it could have been that she could have consumed. The people that think that she may have been killed very quickly after the abduction, they point to the fact that she did have lunch at school that day. And according to Renner's book, it was spaghetti. There have been other people that have suggested that this type of product that we found, we find this to be very similar to what you might find on pepperoni pizza. And if that's the case, then she consumed another meal after the abduction, as far as we know. Other people have pointed out that it could have been from something like Chinese food. So there, there's a lot of thought there and a lot of speculation on how long she was alive and captive. But we have a pretty good idea of what she left school with, like what she was wearing. Very good, very descriptive. Mm-hmm. I mean, from everything to her outfit, to her jacket, to her book bag, uh, some of the contents of her book bag, the type of shoes she was wearing. She was wearing riding boots, as well as the earrings that she was wearing. That is a huge factor in this case. And I've actually always believed that this would be what would find and hang the killer. Okay. Because some of these items that she left her home with that day, the day she was taken, 
Some of these items have never been, they weren't recovered with her body and they've never been found since then. So let's go through that again real quick. She was wearing a, to, to simplify it, she was wearing a green jogging outfit, a white nylon jacket and black ankle boots. Uh, these are decorated boots with silver studs. And she had on those turquoise earrings. These, these earrings are shaped like a horse head. Uh, she was also carrying a black leather folder decorated with the Buick three Chevron logo with the words best in class embroidered on the front. So what we need to point out here where I said earlier, she was found fully clothed. And I, and I said, I'm using air quotes there. What was not found is her white nylon jacket, her book bag, the earrings, the riding boots, and the folder, the Buick folder. Those items were never found. Now, what is interesting, I think it was in 1997. It was years, years after the abduction and the murder of Amy Mahalovic until they released that information. You know, they knew at the time, these items are all missing. The killer either kept them on purpose or kept them on accident. Yeah. Or they, they were discarded of elsewhere. So the boots are missing and the earrings are missing. Boots, earrings, folder, book bag, uh, and the nylon jacket. So when they, when the police and FBI present this information to the public, they come out and they say, look, these earrings were missing. This folder was missing. The boots are missing. What they purposely left out was the nylon jacket and the book bag. Right. And it was, it was Bill Huffman that asked the chief of police, the current chief of police, why did you not include that back in, if it was 97, back in 97 when you released that information to the public? And Spetzel says that that's for good reason. You don't want to muddy the waters too much here because the nylon jacket that she was wearing is super common. There's thousands of them. The book bag that is missing, it's very, again, common. Right. There's thousands of them. It's not unique. It's not specific to Amy. What is unique and specific to Amy are these earrings. These are like almost one-of-a-kind earrings. The right. boots, they're riding boots. Uh, anybody that rides horses, they know that there's there are commonly made boots, mass-produced boots, and then there are there are also some boots that are not common, that are one-offs, that are made special. These, This would be a, a very uncommon item, especially for a young girl. You would expect most to be wearing you know, tennis shoes. Right, but this makes me think that the person that took her knew that these items were indicators. And what I mean by that is maybe they worked at the place that she took writing lessons. And so by taking these items away, maybe they would not know that she was wearing them that day. But if she was seen with that, that maybe that would be a clue to lead them back to somebody. Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, yeah. And the other thing, too, that was missing is that black leather folder decorated with the Buick 3 Chevron logo and the words best in class. Right. This is embroidered. This is not, you know, trapper keeper. This is not go to to Kroger or to CVS and pick up just any general folder for my child to take to school. Right. This is a very specific, very unique folder. This was actually something that was made by Buick. Remember, Mark is employed by Buick at the time. This is something he received at work. There's not a lot of them. It's awfully fancy. And he gives it to his daughter to use for school. So, the thing that the police pointed out when they come out with this news conference is they say, everyone out there, look at these items, look at the earrings, look at the riding boots, look at the black folder, any of these items. If you know someone that has one, two, or all three of these items, we want to talk to you because we want to talk to them. That was something that I, I personally thought at the time. When they came out with that, that information, I thought it might not be long. 
it might not be long until they find out who killed Amy. But these items are obviously items that are easily to discard. But you also just wonder with the weird connection with this case, if if this person was obsessed with Amy on, on some level that you would, I would assume that they would keep these items, at least a few of them. Or, yeah, or maybe even just one. It's not terribly uncommon, one, for particularly serial killers. And I don't know that we are dealing with a serial killer here. It could be some type of serial offender. But it's not uncommon for them to keep trophies or ways of remembering their victim or victims. So that's one possibility that that the killer is actually you know, with, with thought and effort hanging on to these items. That is a possibility. And then, like you said, it's also a possibility that they transported the body and then just discarded of these items simply by throwing them in the trash. Right. And maybe they also thought that this would be a way to identify her faster. Yeah. And the thing too is, See that I thought about that for a long time and questioned that myself. I really think that I don't see any effort made on behalf of the killer to slow down identifying the body of being that of Amy Mahalovic. You know, we don't have fingers removed, the head removed. We don't have the body being buried. Right, but we have uh, a long period of decomposition. So you wonder if she was somewhere else he let her sit there long enough. So the decomposition process is further along and then he discards of her. Right. But it, I mean, it was no trouble to identify it, the body as being hers. Right. Right. Fair enough. Personally, I, I think that if there was, if what they were worried about her being identified as Amy Mahalovic, as the victim that he abducted, if that was truly what they were worried about, I think that this individual would have buried her somewhere. And unfortunately, well, fortunately he did not because unfortunately had he done that, there's a chance she may have never been found. And then that's a whole new set of problems and issues for the case. The other thing too, that uh, I should point out is, and I think this is a big reason why not only do you know anybody that has these items that were missing from Amy, not only does that mean the killer, but could the killer have give given any of these items away? Right. You know, when we talked about the Green River killer, Gary Ridgeway, he, he'd get these victims. He would take jewelry or other small items from them, and he would sell them at his garage sales or give them to coworkers or to his wife and say, hey, I bought you something, or hey, I found something for you. Well, and we both believe that these are sexually motivated it's a sexually motivated crime, and we both believe that this perpetrator would not stop trying to mit- to commit these sexual crimes to molest or rape young females. So these could be gifts as part of the grooming process mm-hmm. uh, to other victims. Yeah, I don't know how many times this offender has offended, let's say, but um, I don't believe this was his first attempt at doing so. Amy right. was not his first attempt at doing so. And if, in fact, he did not intend to kill her and it went that way, it went very wrong for him, there is a chance, be it a very, very small chance, in my opinion, yeah, that it was enough to scare him off of this for good. But I, I don't think that that's the situation. I think this individual probably attempted to offend again but making sure that they that murder wouldn't be the end result so that is what was not found but there was an update about what was found at the place that she was uh, left okay so this update took place june 23rd in 2016 i know you and i spoke about this on mike somewhere, right? Did we do that on off the record? I believe so. Okay. So let's go through this real quick. On June 23rd, 2016, Bay Village Police Chief Mark Spetzel, Cuyahoga County Prosecutor Tim McGinty, and FBI Agent Phil Torsney 
held a a press conference in which they presented never before seen evidence in hopes that it could refresh someone's memory. The evidence was a handmade curtain and blanket that had been discovered near Amy's body. When the items were tested for DNA or fingerprints, canine hairs that matched Amy's dog, Jake, were found on both items, indicating that his hair, the dog's hair, had been transferred from Amy's clothing to the curtain and blanket. When Amy was found, she had not been draped in either item, leading investigators to believe that the curtain and blanket had most likely come from the location where she was murdered. It is theorized that she may have been wrapped in them to conceal her body while her killer transported her to County Road 1181. Identifying the curtain and blanket could lead investigators to the scene where she was killed. At the same press conference, it was also revealed that the reward fund for any information leading to the arrest of Amy's killer was now up to $50,000. Now, I think when we spoke on record or off the record or wherever it was <laughs> yeah. that I, I expressed some anger and disappointment to the investigators and the investigation of Amy's abduction and murder. And I said that because I, I was, I was frustrated at the time. I was happy to learn about the new information, but I was frustrated to learn that 26 years later, Hey, does anybody know where this curtain came from or this blanket came from? Because we now, we, we believe it's connected to her murder. Yeah. And the fact that they were custom made. Yes. These are handmade items. To me, they actually look like they were an item that served a purpose at one time and were, uh, repurposed, repurposed, reconfigurated in a way to serve a different purpose later. And yes, very likely if, if they found, uh, hairs, Amy's dog's hair on these items, then they are connected to Amy. They are connected to her murder. I do want to clear something up. And this adds to the defense of law enforcement and not to my own defense, but I later yeah, screw you. Yeah. Screw you, Nick. Uh, I later learned that the reason why they waited so long to release this information is that for many, many, many of those years, I don't know how long, but for a good majority of that time, they did not know that they were connected to Amy. Right. They were just found close to her. They were found close to her. She wasn't found wrapped up in these items. It wasn't obvious that they were connected to her. It was only through finding those hairs on these items that they were in fact connected to her and to her case. So, but but that tells us something, right? Because it tells us a lot. But I want to I, I kind of want to go through this just real quick before you jump in with that idea. Later, when I was reviewing some of my stuff that I've collected over the years on Amy's case, I found newspaper clippings where the investigators that responded to the call about the body being found in the field, you can see pictures of them in the newspaper where they are carrying trash bags full of items. So, again, this is not through a lack of effort on anyone's part in the investigation. So I'm kind of slapping myself here for expressing some anger toward that notion. What they did was they collected just about any item that they found within a half mile radius of her body. This would have been everything from people, you know, from terrible, worthless people that throw trash out their car windows to cigarette butts, beer cans, beer bottles, anything that was just flying around, flapping in the wind, blowing around in that field out there. They collected all of those items. And the way that it works is back then, keep in mind, this is 89, this is 1990. They can only, they had to send items off to the FBI for testing. And the FBI, of course, they're not, this is in its infancy, this kind of technology. The FBI is saying, you can't send us a whole U-Haul truckload full of trash bags, full of stuff that you found at the scene. Right. We can't test all that stuff. Send us what you think is connected first. We'll test that. We will come back to you with the results. Then later you can send us some more and you can send us some more. I actually, I have heard this. I obviously, obviously don't know if it's true or not, 
but I believe that the curtain and or the blanket may have been found anywhere from 100 feet to 100 yards away from her body. So if if you just take the most simplest idea of investigating and deducing what items are more likely to be connected to Amy than items that are less likely to be connected to her body, you start with the stuff that you find closest to her. So, you know, I, I'm just kind of, I wanted to, to throw that out there to admit that I was wrong. Admit that I was wrong there. Eh, I don't know. But she had to be transported somehow. And and th- that could have just been the murderer carrying her. But But back to my point, there's not much, there would be no sign of blood on these curtains. Correct. It, it does not appear to be that way, and they've never stated so. If they did find blood on them or anything they thought to be blood, they probably would have, these items would have been sent much earlier right, for testing. Right. So what this can tell us is, okay, the, what we actually know here, 100%, is Amy's body and or clothing came in contact with these two items at some point. So she was either had either laid on them, been wrapped in them, or concealed in them, or all three at some point during the course in which she was held before the body is placed in that field. The thing is, with there being no blood on it, it it would point more towards that these items, while they may have been in the general vicinity of where she was attacked and killed, these items likely were not applied to her body or clothing until the bleeding had stopped. Right. right. To put it as, you know, plain and simple as we can. Yeah. Or So I think it's it's likely that these two items were used for one or two purposes. One, transporting the body and maybe concealing the body in the field. Because keep in mind, if she was out there for close to 100 days or about 100 days, that body was not spotted by anybody. So these items that, are that very really important. That really makes me wonder because it, it is a pretty open field at that point. It, it makes me wonder if if people actually saw this when they're driving by and they just didn't stop because it didn't look like anything recognizable at the time or, or or if she just wasn't out there that long well that's something that we can really dive into uh in the next part here but that that is a good question that's something interesting to think of And for our old episodes and off-the-record episodes, check out the Stitcher app. You can also find our show off-the-record if you go to truecrimegarage.com and click on the the off-the-record link. And until tomorrow, be good, be kind, and don't let Screw you, man. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. 